Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update, Malignant Melanoma Issue. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Evan Lipson, and to begin, he presented a 50-year-old man from his practice. This gentleman had a skin primary that was removed a year and a half or so prior to his presentation with metastatic disease. And as many of these patients do, they get their initial care through a dermatologist who does a biopsy of a lesion, for example, of the skin. When it's found to be a melanoma, the patient was then referred to a surgeon who does a wide local excision. This particular patient had a sentinel lymph node biopsy performed and had a positive sentinel node and so went on to have a completion lymph node dissection. What was the location? It was on his left arm and the sentinel node was in his left axilla. And what kind of work did he do? This gentleman had worked construction for most of his life and so therefore spent a good deal of time in the sun. Was, I don't think, particularly concerned about sun protection while he was out doing his work, and that's fairly common. It also is common in our patient population to see people whose ancestry is European and maybe have fair skin in their background, and that was the case with this gentleman as well. Now, one of the options that probably was considered initially for this man was adjuvant therapy. We see adjuvant therapy in other parts of oncology, breast cancer, colon, lung cancer. What kinds of options exist in the adjuvant setting for a patient like this, and how effective are they? That's a good question. So the adjuvant therapy options for patients with high-risk but resected melanoma, so patients that have had their melanoma removed surgically, it's a fast-moving field at the moment. So traditionally, the standard of care or a standard of care would be interferon, so high-dose interferon, either given the standard way, which would be for four weeks intravenously, followed by 48 weeks of self-injection three times a week. And then more recently, approved for patients with resected stage three melanoma is the pegylated interferon. And I generally have a detailed conversation with patients at the time that they've had their disease resected by surgery, and we discuss the specifics of what we know and don't know about interferon. So one thing we know about interferon is that in multiple studies, it's been shown to delay the time to disease recurrence. And so if you take a large population of people with high-risk resected disease, give half of them interferon, the other half do not get interferon, and follow them over time, a percentage of those patients are going to recur. Not everybody, but a percentage will recur. And the percentage of patients that recur in the interferon group in general will do so approximately a year later than the ones who did not get the interferon. And so for some patients, that delay in progression, that delay of disease return is of benefit. And some of the reasons that I've heard patients talk about wanting to pursue interferon given the potential for a delayed return would be that the field is moving so quickly that if, for example, a patient's disease were to come back in a particular year where a drug was not yet approved versus coming back the year later where a new drug was approved, perhaps there'd be an additional therapeutic option on the table. So that's one reason that patients choose to pursue interferon. We also talk a little bit about the potential for overall survival benefit, and that's a little bit more controversial. And so it's not been definitively shown time and time again, like it has with progression-free survival, that there's a difference in overall survival. So that the evidence there is not as strong. And so I caution patients that the benefit in terms of overall survival may not be as great as they'd like. 
On the flip side of that coin, there are patients, and this gentleman here we're talking about is included among them, where they hear about the side effects of the therapy, of interferon therapy, and that would include fatigue, some flu-like symptoms, lack of appetite, some mood disorders. And when they hear those side effects and they think about the duration of therapy, which is approximately a year, and they consider what their lives are filled with, some of them decide that they can't undergo the therapy because of the side effect profile. And so this gentleman is one example. So construction work carries with it, obviously, the risk of injury and safety is paramount. And so for him, he felt like he couldn't be fatigued on the job. He couldn't feel the way that many people feel when they're on interferon and still do his job safely. I've had that same conversation with patients who, for example, are nurses and who have to be at the top of their game every day and mistakes are very costly. Other patients, for example, of mine who have been teachers oftentimes had difficulty with interferon because, you know, being in the classroom on your feet, corralling children, et cetera, is tiring. And so a medication that's going to exacerbate fatigue is not something that they're willing to embark upon. So what was this man's status when you first evaluated him? When I first evaluated this patient, he was symptomatic and affected by his disease. And so his lung metastasis were causing a cough. His soft tissue metastases were painful for him. And not only was his disease burden rather large, his tumors were palpable and his lung metastases were large, but in fact they were growing quickly. And he could wake up in the morning and notice that a subcutaneous metastasis, a soft tissue metastasis, had grown appreciably in the preceding days. And so it just speaks to the sort of aggressive and fast-growing nature of the tumor. And when you examined him, can you talk about the masses that you were able to feel, where they were, what they looked like, what they felt like? Yeah, some of these subcutaneous masses are just underneath the skin. Occasionally, they'll have a black appearance to them or a pigmented appearance to them. When you run your hand over the patient's skin at the site of a metastasis, it feels like there's a frozen pea or a marble underneath the skin. Sometimes you can't even see the metastasis itself, but if you put your hand over top of it, you can feel it. And so this particular patient had multiple of them over his back and shoulders and chest and just about anywhere you put your hand within a several inch radius, you could feel one or more metastases underneath the skin. So when you evaluate a patient who's presenting for the first time with metastatic disease such as this patient, in addition to evaluating the patient and their symptoms and by imaging the extent of their disease, what else is critical? And maybe you can talk a little bit about what BRAF mutations are and any other assays that you consider before trying to figure out how to treat a patient like this. Sure. So there are a couple things that go into figuring out what first-line therapy is going to be for a particular patient with metastatic melanoma. One element, as you mentioned, is the presence or absence of a mutation in BRAF. And so it's important in treating patients who have high-risk melanoma that's been resected to try to get BRAF testing and potentially mutation panel testing done early in the course of disease. So when I say mutation panel, it turns out that more than just BRAF is important in melanoma. So we check the BRAF gene. We check a gene called NRAS, N-R-A-S. We check another one for C-KIT, K-I-T. And as we learn more and more about what mutations commonly occur in melanomas, we add to our panel of mutations that we look for. In general, in my clinic, patients with stage 2B disease and above 
are tested for these mutations. And so any patient who has had a 2B melanoma that's been resected, who has no evidence of disease, they get their tumors tested with the melanoma mutation panel. And we often don't act on that information right away, but we file it away and have it in case we need it. In this gentleman's case, he was known to be a BRAF mutant with a V600E mutation. There are several flavors of BRAF mutations, V600E, V600K. There are others outside of the 600 locus, a 600 spot. But in this gentleman's case, he was a V600E mutant. We should also maybe clarify that when you talk about these mutations, you're talking about mutations in the tumor and not germline mutations. That's right. That's right. And in fact, that's a common question among the clinic patients is, is this a mutation that I'm going to pass down to my children? And you're exactly right that these mutations occur in the tumor and not in the patient's genome, as it were. And so this is not something that you would find if you looked in the genetics of the patient's white blood cells, for example. And I guess your point is really well taken about trying to do the BRAF assay ahead of time, you know, on the initial tumor that's removed because you have a patient who comes in like this one with the disease is sort of growing right in front of them. It's nice to know that answer and not have to send it off. Yeah, it is certainly nice to have it in your pocket if you need it. We try to get this testing done, as I say, as early as possible in the course of a patient's disease. There are patients that come in with an untyped tumor who could use a rapid response to therapy. In other words, patients who come in who, if they had a BRAF mutation, you would use a BRAF inhibitor right away. But because that's not known, you can't just start that therapy. And so for those cases, if we have access to tumor tissue, we try to request a STAT mutation analysis. There are other cases where patients will come in and for one of several factors, testing the tumor isn't possible. So for example, some patients will have an unknown primary and you don't have access to that tissue or they had just a a fine needle aspiration and there isn't enough tissue to actually send for BRAF testing. Some patients have had multiple primary melanomas and it's not clear which of the melanomas is the one that has metastasized and so therefore you don't know which of the primaries to test. So sometimes if we can't get a hold of a quick tumor sample from a metastasis, what we'll end up doing is sending an analysis for circulating tumor DNA. So there are a few companies out there who are able to find the presence of BRAF mutant or sometimes NRAS mutant DNA in the blood circulation. And so oftentimes we'll be able to send off a tube of blood and within about 48 or 72 hours get an answer about whether the BRAF or NRAS mutation was detected in the blood. And a lot of these kinds of things we're also hearing about in lung cancer, including the serum assay, but also this concept of a tumor mutation. What fraction of patients with melanoma have tumors that are BRAF positive? About half of patients have a BRAF mutant tumor to some degree. What we're encouraged by, though, is that as we learn more and more about the mutations present in melanomas, we're finding that there are additional opportunities for intervention. So, for example, we've seen now that patients with NRAS mutations can sometimes be responsive to MEK inhibitors. We've seen that patients with KIT mutations can oftentimes be responsive to drugs like imatinib. So the more we test, the more we find, the more options we have. But in terms of BRAF inhibitors, MEK inhibitors, these only work in patients who have BRAF tumor mutations. The MEK inhibitors generally work in patients with BRAF 
mutations. And as I say, there's some evidence that patients with NRAS mutations uh, may be effective there as well. But you're right. In the large majority of cases, about half of patients have a BRAF mutation. And for those patients, we're generally using BRAF in combination with MEK inhibition. So we know that there are two major forms of systemic therapy, melanoma, BRAF inhibitors, plus or minus with MEK inhibitors, but also, as you talked about before, immunotherapy. And we'll talk about the different types of immunotherapy. But when you have a patient who has a BRAF tumor mutation, do you always start out with a BRAF inhibitor or do you sometimes start with immune therapy? No, with a patient with metastatic melanoma, whose tumor harbors a BRAF mutation, just because the BRAF mutation exists does not mean that our first-line therapy is going to involve a BRAF inhibitor. In fact, in many cases, we prefer to start with immunotherapy in patients, especially with a lower disease burden. In patients with a large disease burden or with a disease burden that is moving particularly quickly, sometimes in patients with BRAF mutations, at that point, we are more inclined to start with BRAF inhibition. So it sounds like this man fit more into the emergent situation. He's coughing. He's got a lot of lung mets. He's got sub-Q mets that are growing right in front of him. What are the options that are available now or considerations in terms of specific systemic therapy for these patients? That's a good question. So as you say, there are two or perhaps three different categories of therapy for patients with metastatic disease. So immunotherapy would be the first one, and that would involve drugs like anti-PD-1 or ipilimumab, anti-CTLA-4. The second category would be BRAF-directed therapy or targeted therapy against NRAS or CKIT. And then the third category of therapy is chemotherapy, although that's, for the most part, fallen out of favor just because chemotherapy is not particularly effective in a majority of patients with melanoma, though we still do use it from time to time. But the discussion in my clinic generally revolves around which of the two categories to start with, and that would be immunotherapy versus targeted therapy. And so, as you say, with patients who have a large disease burden who are symptomatic, just like this gentleman is, so lung metastasis causing cough, rapidly growing soft tissue metastases, BRAF and MEK inhibition is often our first line. You mentioned if the patient has a more limited disease, is not symptomatic, that you would be thinking more about immunotherapy to start with. Why is that? Immunotherapy is a great option for otherwise reasonably healthy patients with no other autoimmune toxicities with a low disease burden who have the luxury of time to wait for the immunotherapy to activate the immune system to cause the tumor destruction. So just to give you a sense of what that timing feels like. So for example, with patients who have rapidly growing disease, who start on BRAF inhibition, it's not uncommon for them to call us within, say, three or four days and say, I'm already starting to feel better. So the medications can work that quickly. I have one patient who, with 24 hours off of his BRAF medication, he starts to feel his tumors causing pain again. And he goes back on it, and again, within 24 hours, the pain subsides. So the BRAF inhibition can work that quickly. The timeline for an immune agent is probably slower, although not always, but probably slower. In general, we see that modality work over weeks to sometimes months. And so in patients where we start patients, for example, on PD-1, at the eight-week time point, sometimes we'll see that the therapy is starting to work. And then probably by 16 weeks, you really get a solid idea of whether the therapy is having an effect or not. But in terms of having a rapid response over the course of days or maybe a week or two, BRAF is the way to go. 
And I guess the thinking, though, in a patient who's stable about immunotherapy is even, actually they're less likely to respond, I guess, than to a BRAF inhibitor or combination. But if they do respond, you have the possibility of very, very prolonged response. That durable remission is really the key. The durability of disease control with immunotherapy is one major reason why oftentimes we will choose to start with immunotherapy upfront. So as you say, in patients, for example, who were treated approximately 10 years ago with ipilimumab, about 20% of those patients are alive today. The numbers get pretty small out that far, but there is certainly a plateau of survival out after a number of years, and that is persistent. So that potential for long-term survival is why, in some patients, we're able to use immunotherapy up front. We're seeing similar results with the anti-PD-1 agents, although those agents haven't been around as long as ipilimumab, and so that story's not as fully written. But it seems as though the long-term responses that we see with ipilimumab can also be seen with some of the anti-PD-1 agents as well. So this patient, because of his symptoms and the extent of his disease, you felt needed therapy targeting his BRAF mutations. What are the options out there? What are some of the other options that are in development? Well, right now, the standard of care for patients where BRAF and MEK inhibition or targeted therapy is called for in the case of a BRAF mutant melanoma generally involves a BRAF inhibitor in combination with a MEK inhibitor. And so there are probably two ways to go about that, at least that are commonly available. So the first would be the two approved medications used in combination. That would be dibrafenib and trametinib. And so those two medications have been tested together and separately, but in general, when we can, we use them in combination. The reason for doing so is an improvement in progression-free survival in patients who were treated with the combination dibrafenib plus trametinib when compared with patients treated with dibrafenib alone. The other way to treat, or another way to treat patients with BRAF mutant melanoma is the combination of vemurafenib and cobimetinib. But in any case, vemurafenib plus cobimetinib or dibrafenib plus trametinib would be two ways to go. And in terms of efficacy, what was seen initially when just the BRAF inhibitors were used, and what's being seen now with these combinations? Well, efficacy is excellent. Unfortunately, the duration of that efficacy is not what we would like. So when using BRAF-directed therapy, a large majority of patients are going to respond from the point of initiation of therapy. Unfortunately, resistance to medication can develop relatively early in the course of therapy for some patients. And so, for example, we've had patients who have gotten onto BRAF and MEK therapy, and within about three months, the disease learns to grow even in the presence of the drug. And so, on average, progression-free survival for patients on combination BRAF and MEK is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of between 9 and 12 months. So, for some patients, it's substantially shorter than that three months. On the other side of that spectrum, we have certainly had patients who are out two and three years who still have disease control and still are on dibrafenib and trametinib or any of the BRAF and MEK inhibitors. And what kinds of side effects and complications are seen with BRAF inhibitors when they're used by themselves and then when they're combined with MEK inhibitors? It's a good question. So the side effect profile is an interesting story for BRAF and MEK inhibition. So in one trial, using a combination of the BRAF and MEK drugs, there was a non-significantly increased 
rate of grade three or greater adverse events, but it did not impact the rate of study drug discontinuation. So perhaps a little bit worse on the toxicity scale, though not significantly so, but it didn't impact the person's ability to stay on the drug. The one exception to that, or an exception to that, is that the number of secondary cutaneous cancers decreased with combination therapy. So we see in this, in using these therapies, that sometimes people will get cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas or keratoacanthomas, and the rate of those cancers decreased with combination therapy. What other kind of side effects do you see with these agents, and what about fever? Yeah, fever is a big one, and we should actually discuss that in detail. So. Some of the side effects we see with BRAF and MEK inhibitors would include some GI issues, so diarrhea or nausea. Some patients get constipated. Many patients get a rash. In fact, rash is perhaps one of the more common, if not the most common side effect of MEK inhibition. Occasionally, liver enzyme abnormalities can occur. Just about every patient feels some sort of fatigue, even if it's just early on and then that abates. Photosensitivity is a big issue, so we tell patients that if you're going to go out in the sun, get covered up, wear sunscreen, wear a hat. Even just being out in the sun for a few minutes can really cause a bad rash. Some patients experience anemia or a drop in white blood cell count. That's generally not to dangerous levels, though we have had patients before who have dropped their ANC to where they've become neutropenic. Another risk is of blood clots. So we've seen patients who have developed pulmonary emboli. And in fact, in one of the trials comparing combination therapy with BRAF monotherapy, there was an increased rate of pulmonary emboli in patients receiving combination therapy. The cutaneous squamous cell cancers I mentioned, and then fever, as you said, is perhaps the trickiest of the side effects to work up. So let me just briefly run through kind of how we approach each of these more common side effects. So the rash, as I say, is very common. Almost everybody who's on the MEK inhibitor gets some sort of rash, some more severe, some less so. Oral antibiotics can be helpful. Many of our patients are on, for example, doxycycline every day to help control the rash. Sometimes we'll use a topical antibacterial agent, so for example, a clindamycin solution or a triclosan wash. In other cases, we are sending patients to dermatology for regular skin checks because of the risk of cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. And when they get to their dermatologist, the dermatologist will see the rash, and they can oftentimes help us manage the medications we use to treat the rash. Something else we think about is the risk of hypertension or cardiomyopathy. So we monitor blood pressure closely in all of our patients. And then in patients starting on BRAF and MEK therapy, we try to get an echo at baseline to look at ejection fraction. And then we try to do that again every few months once they're into therapy. It's an uncommon side effect, but one that you don't want to miss. One thing I should mention is that sometimes patients will complain of shortness of breath, and there are multiple reasons for that, of course, but something to consider in these patients, A, is the increased risk of pulmonary embolism, B, is the risk of anemia, so with a low enough red cell count, patients can complain of shortness of breath, and then third is this risk of cardiomyopathy, and so rarely you'll find that someone's ejection fraction has dropped to the point where they feel symptomatic from that, that drop in EF. And then the last side effect that I wanted to touch on was the issue of fevers. And this is a particularly tricky one because all of our patients are certainly at risk for infections, including the normal everyday infections that healthy folks get, so flus and colds and things like that. But complicating matters is that in many cases, patients who are on BRAF and MEK inhibition 
will wind up with a drug-related fever. And this is sometimes tricky to work up. It does require that we rule out that there is an actual infection present. So when a patient calls us reporting a fever of 100.4 or higher, we ask them to stop the drugs. We bring them in to evaluate clinically how they're doing and look for a source of an infection. So are you coughing? Any burning when you pee? Is there any evidence on examination of a cellulitis, for example? Any headache? Other reasons that this person might have a fever. We send blood cultures, we send urine cultures, and most patients end up getting a chest x-ray. And then once we've satisfied ourselves that there's no infectious cause for the fevers, at that point we assume that the fever has been caused by the medication, so the BRAF-MEC combination. In general, it is the BRAF agent that does it, but we end up stopping both drugs oftentimes just so that the dust can settle. So a couple of interventions that we'll recommend in the case of fevers caused by the drug. Dose interruptions for some patients do work and you're able to restart the drug, although certainly do consider those patients at higher risk for a recurrent fever when the drug restarts. In some cases, you can use non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or acetaminophen, although there again, that doesn't do quite as much as we would like in terms of keeping fevers away. What is most effective is the use of corticosteroids. And so with the addition of corticosteroids, oftentimes you can restart the combination therapy, bring the dose back up to where it began at the beginning, and sometimes you can control that secondary fever. You can control the recurrence of a fever. So what happened with this man? So this gentleman in particular actually skated through without too much problem with regard to side effects from the dibrafenib and trametinib. He did go on to experience disease progression, though, approximately nine months into his course. And so, did he have a response? Yes, he did. He had an initial response that was robust. And so his subcutaneous metastasis decreased in size very rapidly. His symptoms improved markedly over the first couple of weeks of therapy, and he actually did quite well uh, until he developed resistance to the drug, and then his disease began to grow again. And what did you do at that point? Well, at that point, he presented with brain metastasis as well as growing lung metastasis. And so we started him on anti-PD-1. So he started on pembrolizumab. And we also sent him to colleagues in radiation oncology who performed stereotactic radiosurgery on his brain metastasis. And what happened? And what's the current situation? Currently, he's still receiving pembrolizumab and doing well with that drug. And his brain metastasis are being evaluated by his radiation oncologist. In patients who have responses to BRAF inhibitors or BRAF MEK inhibitors like this one, like is typical, who then respond and then have disease progression, are there any alternatives to using targeted therapy or you just sort of abandon it after that initial shot? Well, unfortunately for patients who develop resistance to BRAF and MEK inhibition, the targeted therapy landscape after that is not quite as well defined. So there are certainly clinical trials available for patients who have progressed through BRAF and MEK inhibition who we are trying to treat with other targeted agents. But what you say in general is true. Once the BRAF and MEK inhibition has run its course in general, if we can, we turn to immunotherapy. So let's talk a little bit about immunotherapy. And before we get into some of these cases, maybe you can just sort of take a step back and talk a little bit about the history of immunotherapy, the history of immunotherapy for melanoma, and where we are today. 
Immunotherapy has a long history that dates back probably over 100 years, and one of my favorite stories involves a doctor named William Coley, who was a physician and surgeon back in New York in the late 1800s. And one of the patients that he wrote about was a gentleman who had sarcoma, and at the time that the patient underwent surgery, he also developed an infection, a bacterial infection, and so he spiked a high fever, and his immune system was certainly activated against this bacteria that he had in his body. And when his immune system was activated, not only did it wipe out the infection coursing through his body, but it also wiped out the tumor. And in fact, Dr. Coley went back several years after the patient's surgery and infection and fever. He went back after a while and found this patient, and sure enough, he was still alive and still had no evidence of sarcoma. And what this suggested to Dr. Coley was that if you could activate the immune system in just the right way, you could make it attack cancer for long periods of time. And so he dedicated his career to trying to reproduce that outcome, essentially. And so 120 years or more later, what we've learned is that the mechanisms by which the immune system is activated are multiple for starters, and that some of the newer agents are activating immunity in ways that we've never done before. So about 10 or 15 years ago, really the only immune therapy that was consistently curing a very small percentage of patients would be high-dose interleukin-2, high-dose IL-2. And there are some practitioners, Hopkins included, where we're still using high-dose interleukin-2 for select patients. But more recently, some of the newer drugs that have been approved by the FDA and that are in clinical trials are immune checkpoint inhibitors. So if you picture an immune cell, the immune cell is sitting inside a tumor, and the immune cell is ready to attack the tumor cells around it, but there is, if you will, an immunologic parking brake that has been set on that immune cell. So the drugs that we are using, the checkpoint inhibitor agents that we are using, serve to release that parking brake and allow for the immune cell to attack the tumor that is around it. And can you talk about the types of checkpoint inhibitors that have been studied in melanoma, how they work, and how effective they are and what kind of side effects they have? Sure. Right now, there are probably two checkpoint inhibitors that are most commonly in use. So the first would be a drug that's been developed over the last 20 or so years called ipilimumab. So ipilimumab is an antibody that, as I say, releases a break on T cells. And so when T cells are programmed to attack cancer cells, they have a series of molecules that control that activation. And so the T cell is standing at the ready, prepared to attack this cancer that's in front of it. And there are these regulatory molecules that are either encouraging it or prohibiting it from going forward and activating that attack, attacking the cancer cells. So ipilimumab is a drug that acts upon those regulatory molecules and it goes ahead and encourages the T cells to attack the tumor. The same is true of two new drugs that were approved in the last 12 months or so. One is called nivolumab, and the other one is called pembrolizumab. Those have a similar mechanism of action. They act on a different control, on a different parking brake, but they do the same thing. They activate T cells, and those T cells go forward and attack tumor. And what do we know about the efficacy of these agents? So what we know about the efficacy of ipilimumab is that patients with metastatic melanoma who were treated with ipilimumab had better overall survival compared with patients who were treated with a melanoma vaccine by itself. The second thing we know is that in patients treated with ipilimumab, the percentage of patients who responded to treatment, and it turns out that that's approximately 20% of patients, 
in the percentage of patients that responded to therapy, those responses can last many years out. And so some of those responses are quite durable, lasting sometimes five or 10 years. The number of patients at the moment who have had that much experience with this drug isn't many because the drug hasn't been around that long, but we do know in some patients the responses can be quite durable. We know similar information about anti-PD-1, although we don't know as much yet because the drug has not been around as long. But for patients with metastatic melanoma, we see a response in somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 or 40% of patients with metastatic disease. And it does seem that in some patients, those responses too can be durable and last for many months or years. More recently, there have been trials that have administered both of those drugs in combination. And so one trial recently demonstrated a 61% response rate in patients with metastatic melanoma who received ipilimumab plus nivolumab in combination. What about side effects and toxicities with these agents and with the combination? The side effects and toxicities of these immunotherapy agents is an important topic and one that differs in approach when compared to patients who are being treated with traditional chemotherapies. And so it's important for teams of practitioners to really understand how to approach patients who have toxicities on these agents and what to do in terms of evaluation and treatment. So the drug-induced toxicities that we see with any of the anti-PD-1 agents or anti-CTLA-4 agents like ipilimumab are referred to as IRAEs, or immune-related adverse events. So immune-related adverse events, just as the name suggests, means that the drug has activated the immune system against a part of the body that is a normal part of the body. So in the case of anti-PD-1, for example, if anti-PD-1 is given to the patient and a T cell that is inside a melanoma tumor becomes activated and attacks the tumor, that's the intent of the drug. However, if anti-PD-1 is administered and a T cell that is sitting inside the wall, for example, of the patient's colon is activated, that results in an inflammation, an autoimmune inflammation of the colon, that is a toxicity of the drug. And so you can imagine that that would happen with really any organ system. And that's, in fact, what we see is that just about any organ system can be involved in these autoimmune toxicities or immune-related adverse events. And the reason that's important is because when patients come to clinic or call with complaints, whatever their complaint is, it has to be considered an autoimmune toxicity until proven otherwise. And so drug-induced autoimmunity always has to be considered in the differential, and often it is diagnosed diagnosed by exclusion. So perhaps we can go through a few examples of some of these immune-related adverse events. Yeah, particularly, maybe we can start out talking about colitis, because that seems to be one of the more problematic potential problems. Yeah, colitis is a common autoimmune event. It's particularly confusing, I think, to patients and practitioners both because diarrhea and GI side effects are common side effects of traditional chemotherapies. And so I think that when patients come into the doctor's office and get these immune agents, they sort of expect to have some GI irritation because everyone knows somebody who's gotten chemotherapy and all of those folks have you know, experienced nausea and vomiting, et cetera. And so you really have to educate patients that if you get diarrhea, this is not something that's gonna go away on its own. You really do have to keep in touch with us and we'll help you sort out these side effects and treat you appropriately. 
So as I say, in the case of diarrhea, for example, a patient might call and say, I've had a few loose stools over the course of a day. I have a fever. I don't have a fever. It's important to get a complete picture of what's going on with the patient, abdominal pain, blood in the stool, nausea, vomiting, etc. It's important to ask about other drugs that the patient might have been taking. So for example, we had a patient come in recently who had been started on metformin. And as it turns out, the metformin was what was causing his diarrhea. It's important to consider the cancer itself. Could the tumors be causing whatever side effect the patient's reporting? It's important to consider metabolic causes. It's important to consider possible infectious causes. So for example, we had a patient recently who complained of diarrhea, and as it turns out, he'd been in the healthcare setting for a while. We checked a Clostridium difficile assay on him. Sure enough, he had C. diff in his stool. We treated him with antibiotics, and his diarrhea went away. So early recognition of these symptoms is critical. And so for that reason, we tell our patients every time we see them, please, please keep in touch. No matter how small the complaint, please call us right away. If something is going on, the faster we get to you, the better off we are. So recognizing these potential complications early, evaluating patients right away, and treating them if necessary in a timely fashion is critical for patient safety. So when we think about the severity of these autoimmune events. In general, they're graded on a scale from one to four. And this is a published scale that's put out by the National Cancer Institute. But generally, grade one is a more mild side effect where supportive care can oftentimes be all that you need. When the side effect gets to a grade two, this is a more severe set of symptoms. Sometimes we'll withhold the drug for a time with a grade two side effect. We might consider a low dose of corticosteroids. Corticosteroids is our first-line treatment option for patients who are experiencing an autoimmune side effect. So when I say low-dose corticosteroids, I mean, for example, a half a milligram per kilogram per day of prednisone or the equivalent. And we watch these patients very closely, the patients with grade 2 side effects, to make sure that their symptoms are resolving. A grade three or four side effect would suggest a more severe conglomeration of symptoms. For that, we would discontinue the drug in general. Oftentimes, higher dose corticosteroids are necessary, so prednisone, one to two milligrams per kilogram per day or equivalent. And in general, when we treat patients with corticosteroids for autoimmune toxicities, we don't give them a short burst and then stop. In fact, we taper them over approximately a month or more until the toxicity resolves to a grade one or zero. What about patients who already, prior to the diagnosis of melanoma, had an autoimmune disease, you know, for example, Crohn's disease of the colon? What happens, do we know what happens if these patients receive these immune stimulants? That's a great question, and this speaks to who the patients are that are appropriate for consideration for immune checkpoint blockade therapy. So in patients where there is already an underlying autoimmune disease present. So for example, as you say, patients with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or psoriasis or lupus or asthma or any of the autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, it's important to consider what the ramifications of exacerbating that autoimmune disease would be. And that really is the risk of giving somebody an immune-based agent like anti-PD-1 or anti-CTLA-4 is that you will activate what might be a quiescent autoimmune disease at baseline. Sometimes that works out well. Sometimes patients with underlying autoimmune diseases get these immune checkpoint blockade therapies, and in fact, we don't detect an exacerbation in their underlying autoimmunity. 
And sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes patients who have underlying autoimmune diseases receive immune checkpoint blockade therapies, and lo and behold, their rheumatoid arthritis flares or their asthma flares. And so when you're talking with patients who are being considered for immune therapies, it's important to have a very frank discussion about the very real possibility that an underlying autoimmune disorder would be exacerbated in the presence of an immune checkpoint inhibitor. What are some of the other autoimmune syndromes that you see with these agents? And two that I was curious about is one, pneumonitis, and the other are endocrine problems. Yeah, pneumonitis and endocrine problems are two good ones to talk about. Pneumonitis because it's potentially fatal and endocrine issues because they are sometimes tricky to nail down. So why don't we talk about pneumonitis first? And for that, perhaps we can discuss a a 40-year-old patient of mine who came in with uh, metastatic melanoma and received four doses of anti-PD-1. And there are a couple of issues to consider in a patient like this. So let me paint two scenarios and talk about how we managed both of them. So in one scenario, the patient has symptomatic disease. And by symptomatic disease, I mean a unremitting cough such that at the end of a sentence, she can't stop speaking without coughing. Or for example, shortness of breath just by walking around the block. A low oxygen saturation on examination in clinic. Some symptom or sign that would make you think that there's something going on in the lung that needs to be evaluated right away. And it turns out that in this patient and several of our other patients, if you perform a CT scan when they're having these symptoms, you will see any number of radiographic findings on CT scan or chest X-ray. And the reason this is important is because there can be a highly variable radiographic appearance of pneumonitis, which is to say you can't look at a CT scan and definitively know if somebody's having a pneumonia or somebody's having a pneumonitis or somebody's having lymphangitic spread of their disease. And so One has to have a high index of suspicion for an autoimmune toxicity, whatever the CT or chest X-ray shows. So let's talk about the management of a patient like this who comes in after having checkpoint blockade and is symptomatic from a pulmonary standpoint. So we recommend that they're assessed clinically, so a good history, a good physical examination. They're assessed radiographically, so a good CT scan or a chest X-ray if that's what's available. And then we hold the drug almost across the board for patients where we suspect that pneumonitis is even a consideration. These patients are monitored very closely, sometimes daily. Oftentimes, we'll consider bringing them into the hospital. We're fortunate at Hopkins to have pulmonary colleagues and infectious disease colleagues who are familiar with these side effects and can help us to evaluate these patients. So what we request is a stat bronchoscopy with a lavage. So we want to make sure that in the fluid we're not seeing an aspergillus, for example, that's causing the pulmonary embarrassment. We also ask for tissue biopsy to confirm the diagnosis of a, say, for example, bronchiolitis obliterans pneumonia. So if you can confirm the diagnosis of the pneumonitis by bronchoscopy, at that point you can tailor your therapy to include steroids, for example, or if you find an infectious cause to tailor your antibiotics. But I stress, though, that the rapid workup and evaluation of these patients is critical. This is one of the toxicities that has been associated with fatalities on clinical trials of drugs like anti-PD-1. 
What overall is the risk of a serious complication with an anti-CTLA-4 antibody like ibulimumab, an anti-PD-1 or PDL one agent? Well, so the risk of a grade 3 or 4 complication that is potentially serious is probably in the neighborhood of about 15% with ibulimumab and then perhaps slightly less than that with anti-PD-1. Although, it's often difficult to tease out which of those patients falls into the serious category. So, for example, patients with any grade of pneumonitis really need to be watched closely because oftentimes pulmonary symptoms can escalate quite quickly and somebody who you thought started out perhaps as a grade one can become a grade three fairly rapidly. So what happened with this lady? So this lady ended up doing well. She was bronched with a biopsy. It showed pneumonitis and she received corticosteroids and improved. The second clinical scenario that I was going to discuss is a non-clinically significant pneumonitis. And we see this too, where patients will come in and incidentally you'll find that there is a radiographic finding consistent with pneumonitis. And so the treatment essentially would be the same, although oftentimes we're able to monitor these patients a little bit less closely. So without symptoms, we might not consider hospitalization, but we might consider a daily monitor for the next few days to see how somebody does. So what's the follow-up with this lady? She did quite well. She came off of steroids. She did not receive any further anti-PD-1 therapy, and she had a nice response to the drug, and to this day is doing quite well. Wow, how long has it been? It's been almost three years now. Wow. So she ended up getting taken off therapy because of a complication, and yet she stayed in remission. How often do you see that happen? Not infrequently, and that's a good question that oftentimes our patients will ask, is if I get corticosteroids, does it seem to negate the effects of the drug on the tumor? And it's difficult to say that for sure, but I can say anecdotally that we have several patients for whom corticosteroids has been necessary, but their anti-tumor responses have continued despite administration of corticosteroids, or in some cases, in steroid refractory toxicities, we've had to administer infliximab, and even there, we've seen patients whose anti-tumor responses have continued. I'm going to finish out by hearing about your 73-year-old man who had a problem, an endocrine problem, but just sort of going back to this lady, what's it like to take care of a you know, young patient like this who's facing a situation that not too long ago was universally fatal very, very quickly, and and have her come back to clinic off therapy completely doing great. It's such a pleasure to be able to offer these therapies to patients. As they say, melanoma is the cancer that gave cancer a bad name. And you're exactly right. You know, up until a few years ago, there really was very little we could do for some of these patients. And now, although there's a long way to go in melanoma research, we certainly do have at least the hint of some real progress being made and the possibility of some long-term remissions here. So let's finish out talking about your 73-year-old man. Yes, this is a 73-year-old gentleman with metastatic melanoma, and he was actually receiving a combination of anti-PD-1 and ipilimumab on a clinical trial. 
And I think this case is important because it can demonstrate what is an immune-related adverse event that can be tricky to nail down, and that is hypophysitis. So hypophysitis is the inflammation of the pituitary gland, which is at the base of the brain. And the pituitary gland really controls kind of the general speed with which the body works. So it controls fatigue, it can control weight gain or weight loss, it can control changes in mood or behavior. So it's kind of a general rheostat for the body. And the reason that's important is because any of the things that it can control can be signs and symptoms that something has gone awry. So, for example, oftentimes patients with inflammation of the pituitary gland will complain that they have a headache that won't go away or a headache that is not responsive to acetaminophen or ibuprofen. Other times, though, patients will complain of some more vague symptoms. So, for example, fatigue that is severe enough that they really can't get out of bed in the morning, or weight gain, for example. Oftentimes, patients will complain of changes in mood or changes in behavior, irritability, forgetfulness. Sometimes patients will say that they get up in the morning and they feel like they're going to faint or they're dizzy. Oftentimes, patients will say they feel cold. Occasionally, folks will complain of constipation. But some of these sort of nebulous, hard-to-pin-down symptoms can be a sign that there is an endocrine issue going on. And so for that reason, it's important to track the endocrine blood tests at each time point when patients are on therapy. So we check thyroid function and we check pituitary function fairly frequently. So this particular gentleman we were talking about, our 73-year-old patient, he came in after having a couple of months of anti-PD-1 and CTLA-4, ipilimumab, and he complained of a poor appetite. He said he was dizzy when he got up in the morning. He had some depressive symptoms and just felt hopeless. He had severe fatigue to the point where he really couldn't do much of anything despite having been a pretty active guy prior to that. And we investigated several potential issues. And in the course of our investigation, it turns out that his serum cortisol was almost nothing, was very close to zero, which supported a diagnosis of hypophysitis. What was going on with his tumor? His tumor actually had a nice response. His lung metastasis had decreased in size quite nicely. And so we started him on hydrocortisone replacement for his hypophysitis. And within about 24 hours, he was feeling back to himself. His depression had resolved, his appetite was back, his fatigue was much better. And he was actually quite hopeful again about the state of his disease and how nicely he'd responded to therapy. So this is actually an inflammation of the pituitary gland. That's right. Hmm. And what's his current situation? He continues now on anti-PD-1 monotherapy. He continues to have a great response to treatment, and he also continues on hydrocortisone replacement for his pituitary gland and feels quite well, in fact. So this strategy of combining two different checkpoint inhibitors, as you mentioned, we've just seen some data on that recently. What's seen there in terms of toxicity compared to using, you know, say, one of the agents? When you're using these two agents in combination, ipilimumab in combination with, for example, nivolumab, what we see is a serious toxicity, a grade three or four toxicity in approximately half of patients. Some of those toxicities are clinically important, some of them less so. But for sure, in patients who are on combination therapy, the risk of a serious toxicity is much higher than in patients on either immunotherapy alone. 